Father, thank you today for your word. Thank you, God, that it is the power to change our lives, really. Lord, if we read it, if we apply it, and if we obey it. God, I pray today, Lord, just that you would just speak to our hearts, Lord. Thank you for your anointing this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that it will warm up in Jesus' name. And we thank you. Amen, 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 amen. Spring is coming. I don't care what the thermometer says. Well, I know I'm treading into dangerous territory by disclosing what I'm about to disclose, but um, how many, after a long day, stressful day, uh, you, you like to have some downtime? You know what I'm saying? Some, some downtime, right? Some time to unwind, uh, just to, you know, to turn off your brain, if you will, you know, if you've had a stressful day. Uh, many of us like to do that in different ways, uh, you know, and I must confess, you know, uh, a lot of what I like to do uh, in order to have some downtime um, is, you know, one of the entertainment things, options that my wife and I like to do, we like to, uh, to turn on the TV. Now, I know not everybody are TV people here. I met a lot of people, they don't even watch TV, they don't have time for TV. Well, I'm sorry. I, I, I like watching TV for some downtime, okay? So after a long day, my wife and I, we put the kids to bed. Uh, you know, there's a few shows that we like watching together. And, uh, and sometimes we'll even put on a movie, right? And uh, how many know what I'm talking about, right? And, and usually the, the movie or the TV show, for me, okay, for me, the more action, the more car chases, the more things exploding, the better I unwind, okay? Um, that's usually how it is for me, okay? Now, don't judge me, okay? I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not watching everything that's out there. Of course, there are some stuff we shouldn't be watching on TV. There's a lot of filth, uh, you know, really, that we shouldn't be exposing ourselves as, as Christians, okay? But I must confess, you know, I like action movies. I actually unwind pretty good by watching that kind of a thing. And the other night, Andrew and I had one of these uh, down times. We got the kids to bed, and it was 8.30, 9 o'clock, and let's throw on a movie. All right, so we did... And uh, the movie we watched, it's been out for a while. Uh, some of you have seen it. It's called The Born Identity. Who's ever seen that movie? Yeah, wow, a lot of, ooh, a lot of people have. Wow, okay. Um, you know, we watched this thing, and, and uh, I'm not recommending that you go out and watch it, okay? Uh, but, uh, but we watched it, so don't judge me. Okay. And, uh, and uh, what happens in the movie, there's this character played by Matt Damon, and uh, his name is Jason Bourne. And what happens in this movie, he has uh, come with amnesia. He can't remember anything. And in fact, he wakes up one day in this French fishing vessel in the middle of the ocean. He's in the fishing boat, and he has no recollection of how he got there, of what his name is, anything. He knows nothing about his life. Zilch, zero. Not even his name, not his family, how he got there, what he does for a living. He knows nothing. And he realizes, uh, you know, very quickly after waking up, for, you know, from however long he was out, he's got a couple gunshot wounds in his back. Whoa, what's that about? And he looks down and he's got this microchip implanted in his hip. Whoa, what's that about, right? And he takes that out. And then he starts to go on this journey to find out who he is. And as he, he's going on this journey to find out his identity, right? He's, he's having this real identity crisis, okay? He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know anything about himself. And as he's going on this journey to find out who he is, all of a sudden, the bad guys start coming, and they're trying to take him out, right? I like action movies. Did I say that already? All right. Um, they're trying to take him out. And all of a sudden, man, he's discovering he's got skills and techniques 
and survival things that he's able to take out all the bad guys. And he's like, you know, why? And he doesn't even know what he's doing, right? He's totally taking them out. He has no idea. And he's kind of getting getting himself freaked out a little bit. Like, how do I know how to do this, right? I I don't know anything about myself. Why are these guys after me? Why are they trying to kill me? Why can I take them out? What's going on here? And you get this real sense in the movie of a, a real strong identity crisis. And he doesn't know who he is. Now, as cool as that may seem that all of a sudden I could wake up one day and have all these cool skills to, you know, beat up the bad guys. You know, the reality is that most of us at some point in life, we go through an identity crisis. Is that true? I don't know if you've ever, you know, sometimes we struggle with who we are. Sometimes we struggle with, God, why am I on this planet? What have you created me for? What's my purpose? You know what I'm saying? Has anyone ever been there? You know what? You've struggled with your identity a little bit. A few of us, a few honest people in the room. Okay. Most of us at some point have struggled with that. And if you haven't, you probably will. You know, has anyone ever heard of the the midlife crisis? (laughs) That's an identity crisis. Hello, right? I'm creeping up on that soon. (laughs) But you know what? I would propose today that many of us sometimes enter into these identity crises. Why? Because ultimately, we don't really know the identity of our Savior. We have a hard time understanding who God is, who Jesus is, right? We, have a, we struggle to understand his character, his nature. And when we understand who God is, all of his attributes, and when you read the Bible, you, you know, study the Bible, study the life of Jesus. By the way, you want to know what God is like? Study the life of Jesus because Jesus is God, duh, right? But yeah, but you know, we forget. Sometimes we think God is, is up here somewhere, And we don't equate the fact that Jesus is actually God. And so if we want to know what God is like, study Jesus. Study his life. What did he do? What did he say? How did he react? How did he treat people? Right? So we want to know what God is like, study Jesus. And so we have these identity crises because we don't know the character of God. We don't know how loving, how compassionate, how merciful, how powerful Jesus really is. So we struggle with these things. And when we look into the the Gospel of John... You know, as we have been over the last number of weeks. And, and I want to just, just provide for you, maybe you, you've missed a couple weeks uh, in this series. But just as a little bit of a base of foundation for the Gospel of John. And why it's important to study his Gospel in particular, okay? So John was one of 12 disciples of Jesus. A lot of you already knew that. That's, that's an easy early Sunday school thing. He was one of the 12 disciples, alright? But not only was he one of the 12, he was one of the inner three. Right? You read the New Testament, you get a sense that, yeah, Jesus hung out with the 12 quite a bit, but he spent a little more time with Peter, James, and John. You ever notice that? That's what happens. He spends a little more time. That's kind of Jesus' executive team, right? That's, his, that's his, you know, the closer guys. But you read a little more, and you start realizing, okay, Jesus spent a little more time with Peter, James, and John. But you also start to realize that, boy, Jesus actually spent even a little more time yet with John. You know, the Gospels say that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved, which really talks about the very close student-rabbi friendship, unique, special relationship that they had. Essentially, arguably, you could say that John was Jesus' BFF, okay? His best friend. Now, I don't know about you, but that strikes me as interesting that God would desire a BFF, (laughs) 
He's God, you know? I mean, anyways, it's, it's an interesting thing. <laughs> he has close friends. That's incredible. You know, and by the way, you know, Jesus is all of our friends, right? We have a personal relationship with Jesus. We can be very close to him as well, just as John. You know what? We, we really can. So John was, was, was close to Jesus, right? In fact, John was the only one of the disciples who was at the cross of Christ. All the rest of the disciples were afraid, freaked out by what was going on, you know? They abandoned Jesus at the cross. John was there. And so he stuck with Jesus, you know, through all of this, this, this you know, crazy situation, desperate times, you know, that was going on. John was right there to the very end. So John had this insight into Jesus' life and character, arguably on a different level, perhaps, than, than some of the other disciples in the other gospels. And now it's not that the other gospels aren't deep because they're profoundly deep. But John's gospel in particular concentrates more on Jesus' identity and character than the other gospels. Have you ever noticed that? It's a little different. The other gospels are, are stories about what Jesus did. That's more the emphasis. And John, yeah, there's stories. But the emphasis in John is not so much what he did, but who he is. That's the difference. So we have the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptic gospels. And then you have the gospel of John. And so today, you know what? I just want to reiterate, as we go through this series in the book of John, it's important to know that John's focus throughout the entire gospel is not so much on what Jesus did, but it is about who Jesus is, his character, his identity, and the fact that he is God himself. Okay? Amen? That's what John's purpose is in writing the gospel. And so too is it is his purpose in chapter 5, all right? So with that in mind, let's uh, get into chapter 5. And I have to be very careful this morning. This uh, early service, I felt like I was only halfway through my sermon and there was about two minutes left. And uh, that wasn't good. So uh, we'll try to move a little more quickly here this, uh, in this service. So John chapter 5, here we go. Uh, we'll just pick it up in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem from one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. I'm reading real fast. Jesus comes into Jerusalem for a festival, it's saying, right? Now, it doesn't say which festival. It could have been Pentecost. It could have been Passover. How many know that there was a number of Jewish festivals that were very important for the Jews? And oftentimes, the Jews who were living outside of Jerusalem and all over the place would come into Jerusalem for festival time. So, you know, if you've ever been in Calgary when the stampede happens, how many know that it's a gong show there, right? Like, you can't get a hotel room or whatever. You know, in Edmonton, when, you know, I don't know what happens in Edmonton. In Calgary, you know, when Stampede is happening, the city is busy. It's bustling. It's full. And, uh, and this is kind of what the case is in Jerusalem for festival time. The city is buzzing, full of people. And so you have this, Jesus comes into Jerusalem during this festival time, and he arrives at the pool of Bethesda. And the Bible says, in this pool, okay, it was covered by five colonnades. What does this mean? Well, basically, you know what, it's just, express, this is an expansive area, okay? This is not a small, I remember first reading this, you know, years ago, and thinking, okay, it's a little fountain, you know, people throwing coins in the fountain, they probably wouldn't do that. You know, this little tiny fountain, you know, this is a large expansive area. It says that a great number of people used to lie, we just read that, 
you know, in the pool of Bethesda, hoping to receive a healing when the water was stirred up. There was apparently some mythical, uh, superstitious thing that would happen. Uh, you know, periodically the water would get stirred up and, and, uh, and if someone were lucky enough to be the first one in, perhaps they, you know, they would receive a healing. And so all of these disabled people with diseases and who knows what else, you know, would hang around this pool uh, hoping to receive some kind of a miracle. Now, no doubt, this is, this is, you know, festival time, right? You think people would lay there normally. There'd probably be a good crowd there normally. How many would know then, festival time, this is probably even more crazy, right? This is like, you know, once again, stampede grounds. It's busy normally in Calgary. Any time of year, the stampede grounds is kind of busy. There's things going on, to, you know. But during stampede week, you know, it's a gong show, Right? Think about this, in the same way the Pool of Bethesda, this is, this is festival week, there's you know, a multitude of people are there, hanging around the pool, hoping for a miracle with all kinds of diseases and disabilities and all kinds of things. And so once again, you know what, if the Gospel of John is primarily concerned with the identity of who Jesus is, you know, I want to talk about four, uh, four identity markers of Jesus that are found in this passage, okay? Now, these are not the only four, okay? We're never going to cover all of Jesus' character in four points in 30 minutes that we have left, right? It's not going to happen. But in particular, in John chapter 5, there are four identity markers of Jesus uh, that I want to talk about here this morning. And the first one is simply his mercy. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, goes to this pool of Bethesda, and amongst the throngs of people that are gathered around this pool, right? Once again, this, there's a multitude of people. It's interesting how he narrows in on one particular man. One particular guy whom the Bible calls an invalid, basically a paraplegic, okay? And that means paralyzed from here down, pretty much, all right? Waist down. And he had been hanging around this pool, and the Bible says that he had been a paraplegic for 38 years. That's a long time. You know, we were singing earlier, waiting here for you, and waiting upon the Lord. This guy had been waiting for 38 years for some kind of a miracle, some kind of a touch. And uh, that's a long time to wait. And now, while we might feel sorry for such a person in that condition... Uh, let's not miss some of the, uh, you know, some of the uh, significance for a person in the first century. How many know that today, to be a paraplegic, it's tough. We, we, we empathize with them. Man, I had a guy I went to high school with, uh, this, this swimming hole. We used to go swimming all the time as teenagers. And there was this, we, used to call, we used to call it Big Rock because there was a big rock there. <laughs> We're so obvious in Newfoundland, I tell you. Anyways... Um, the place we used to go swimming was called Big Rock because there was this gigantic rock and we used to, you know, jump off the rock into the water and dive in the water. And this, you know, guy I went to high school with, Jamie, he dove off and he, he struck a rock and he paralyzed himself. And, uh, par- you know, quadriplegic, actually. It was devastating. And, um, you know, boy, our heart just went out to him, his family. It's really terrible, right? Really, really terrible thing. And, and we can empathize with people who are disabled in such a way. But how many know that if someone was a paraplegic today, and however difficult that may be, in the first century, it would have been a lot more difficult to be a paraplegic. You understand what I'm saying? The technologies we have today, the medical community. In fact, uh, commentator Gary Burge, he talks about this, and uh, I have it on there. Yep, there we go. He says, the challenges of a paraplegic in the 21st century, which are considerable, pale by comparison with a person in the first century. Problems of mobility, 
and livelihood and social isolation just begin the list. Consider the problem of personal hygiene. Paraplegics frequently don't have bowel control or bladder control. Taking these issues together, we can build a portrait of this man's life. People moved him from place to place unless he crawled. Most of his income came from uh, begging or from the charity of his friends or family. And if he did not have bladder or bowel control, his hygiene problem would have been enormous. People stayed away from him. His hands used for mobility were rough and torn from the streets. He says, I have seen these people in rural Egypt where they live a step below the poorest of the poor. Their life is agony. So you get a sense, the person who Jesus came to, right? I mean, you know, we think, okay, he's paralyzed. But really, this type of man in the first century when Christ was here was poorer than poor. He was the most down and out in all of society, really, when you think about it, right? People, you got the description. This was not a man who had things going for him. And it's interesting how Jesus pinpoints this man, the man who is down and out, the man who may be socially isolated, who may have hygiene problems, who may have all these things you know, going wrong for him for many years. Jesus pinpoints him and comes to him. So to understand the, the identity of who Christ is, we need to know that yes, Christ cares for everybody, but he cares particularly for those who are down and out. Do you know that? He cares particularly for the down and out in our societies. I don't know if you, you read it through all throughout the gospel, really. That Jesus pinpoints those whom society won't touch, whom society won't go near. But Jesus comes and he touches them and he loves them and he heals them. And not just their physical ailments, but their spiritual uh, issues as well. Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 2 verse 17, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, he goes on to say. So this is really the character of God. Once again, Gary Burgess uh, tells us, uh, he does, he's talking about Jesus, he does not reach out to those who are spiritually on the margin, but socially safe, quote unquote. Instead, he reaches out to someone whose suffering and isolation are beyond measure. Do you know anybody like that? I do. Who have suffering and isolation that really is beyond measure. I know people like that. Jesus wants to reach those people. He wants to touch those people. Maybe you're here today and you've experienced that yourself. Kenneth Gangle, another commentator, says this. People in our society like to say God helps those who help themselves. But John 5 demonstrates precisely the opposite. God helps those who are incapable of helping themselves. Wow. I don't know about you. But there was a time where I was very incapable of helping myself. I couldn't climb my way to God. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't find God, you know, if he was right in front of me. Right? I couldn't do nothing for myself. Friends, when it comes to our salvation, there is nothing you can do in and of yourself. Right? We are incapable of helping ourselves. Jesus comes to us. And so, you know what, if you're here today and you feel like, you know, we're talking about this paraplegic in the, in the first century. Now, you may not be a paraplegic, but maybe you can identify with, with this person who's a down and out in society, who's the poorest of the poor, not just physically or, or, you know, monetarily, but you know what, he's isolated, socially rejected. You know, maybe you can relate to some of, this, some of these things from this man in this story. You need to know today that Jesus cares for you. Jesus is interested in you and he wants to come to you and touch you and heal your broken heart and make you whole. 
He wants to do that for you. Is anyone, someone said an amen here. Can anyone else shout amen? I'm going to start amening myself here in a minute, so don't get too quiet on me. All right. Whoa, I got an amen. <laughs> that was pretty good. Okay. So we talk about one of the identity markers of Christ is his mercy. You know what? He is so merciful, so gracious. You know what? We who have so much sin, myself, I think of, you know, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, you know, we are saved by grace through faith, not of our own works that we should boast. There's nothing I can do in it of myself to warrant God's favor and his mercy. But Jesus comes and gives it as we put our faith in him. Amen. It's a wonderful, powerful truth. And the second identity marker that I want to pinpoint in the story is not only his mercy that he showed towards this man, but it's his initiative. Notice how the healing process went with the man. Did he fast and pray for healing that we know about? Does it mention in the story? No. I mean, not that it mentions. Did he plead and beg Jesus? No. Did he even ask Jesus for a healing? No. (laughs) He never said anything to Jesus, in fact. He never even talked to Jesus at all. Jesus came to him. Jesus came to him. And said, do you want to get well? Funny question. Well, yeah, of course I do, Jesus. What do you think, right? Do you want to get well? Jesus initiated this whole process. He initiated the conversation. He initiated the healing. He initiated changing this man's life. It's an interesting thing. The Bible also says we have not because we ask not. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask God for healings or blessings or help or whatever, right? We should. We should be praying for those things. But we need to understand that in reality, Jesus is the one who initiates it all. You know what? Anything that we have that's good, whether it be healing, we're talking about healing here, our salvation, any type of blessings, our job, our family, our home, anything that we would deem to be good, we need to understand that it's been initiated by God himself, It's through his grace that we have all that we have. It's through his initiation. Well, you say, well, Darren, I worked hard for, you know, to get where I am today. Well, you know, I initiated, you know, I worked really hard. And and, and who gave you the ability to work hard? (laughs) Jesus did, right? He created you. Who gave you that intelligence to, to work through university and get that degree? Who gave you that ability, that intelligence? He did. Right? He's the great initiator. Friends, let me tell you, just the fact that you're here on planet Earth today is because of his initiation. You had nothing to do with it. (laughs) Right? You didn't ask God to create you. That's weird. You know? (laughs) He initiated the process. We didn't ask Christ to go to the cross. He initiated it. It was his idea right from the very start. He went to the cross because he knew that it would give us life, that we'd experience forgiveness of sins, abundant life. So if we got anything to be thankful for, if we got any blessings and anything good in our lives, we need to understand it's by his great goodness and grace and ultimately his initiative today, okay? Amen? All right. That deserves a clap. All right. There you go. Every good and perfect gift is from God above. Yes, we know there is a principle that God rewards those who diligently seek him. That is a principle. That is a truth. So we're not off the hook from asking God, right? We're not off the hook from seeking him. We need to diligently seek him. Absolutely. 
However, sometimes, if we see God you know, rewards those who diligently seek him. However, sometimes God rewards those who, in our eyes, don't deserve anything. You ever see that happen? Where God just, just blesses someone or rewards someone, like they weren't seeking for it, they weren't asking for it, but God just goes, bam! How are we to respond then? Lord, I've been asking you for years for this. You know? And this guy's not even asking you for it. You just, bam, you just give it to him. Like, what's with that, Right? You know, what's interesting, Romans chapter 9, verse 18 says, God chooses to give grace to whomever he chooses. And he pours out mercy on whomever he wants. It's his prerogative. He's God. You know, he's God. He can do what he wants, right? The reality is, friends, this story here is about healing, you know. Time is slipping away. The reality is for the believer, if you are a Christ follower today, we will be healed. Amen. Either in this life or the next life. We will, you're, see, you're searching, uh, seeking, I can't even talk. You're searching God for a healing. You're seeking him for a healing, okay? You're seeking his face. You're crying out to him, maybe years. You need to know today. There's a guarantee for the believer. Either God's gonna heal you in this life, which I pray he will, but if not, Hold on to hope because we have an eternity to spend with him. And my friends, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be no sickness. There's going to be no sin. There's going to be no disability, friends, in eternity when we spend it with Christ. Amen. We're not living for this earth alone. So we need to continue to trust him. Need to continue to trust him. In fact, I would say as believers, the most important thing that we can do is develop an all-encompassing trust in our Savior that he's ultimately working all things together for our good. It's the most important thing we can do is to trust God unequivocally no matter what comes in my life. Come, you know, sorry for the expression, come hell or high water. Guess what? I'm going to continue to trust in Christ my Savior because he's going to carry me through to the very end no matter what happens in life. He's working all things together for my ultimate good. Do you believe that today? Come on now. Yeah. Okay, point three. Let's go. All right. Four identity markers, his mercy, God's initiative. Thirdly, his power. We've already been talking about it. The fact that Jesus has the power to heal. We see in verse seven and nine, you know, he asked the man, uh, do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? The man replies, sir, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Quite simply, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. It's interesting. When Jesus asked the man, do you want to be well? You know, like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a funny question. It's a rhetorical question. You know, of course he wants to be well. He wouldn't be at the pool. Jesus, you know, it's interesting. I think sometimes you see in the scripture how God asks questions. God knows, right? God knows the answer. But sometimes it's interesting, the questions get asked because the answers sometimes reveal what's in a person's heart, right? So the man answers, you know, he didn't answer yes. He said, well, I have no one to put me in the pool, you know. It's almost, you know, it's not making it, it's a legitimate thing. They, they had, apparently, uh, there was some kind of mystical, uh, you know, power in the pool and, and, and maybe it was just a myth and, and, and you know, um, uh, superstition, I don't know. But this is what his response was to Jesus. I got no one to put me in the pool when the water gets stirred. Therefore, I haven't been healed. I got no one to help me. You notice how Jesus didn't even respond to that? Jesus didn't say, oh, this mysticism in the pool, that's a bunch of bunk. Or he didn't say, stop making excuses. 
Jesus just didn't respond to the man's response at all. Jesus just said, get up. You're healed, get up. Just, just like that. You know, talk about power, you know. Jesus didn't kneel down on two knees and pray or, or, or you know, begin a fast. Jesus just sp- speaks a word and it's done. And he demonstrates in this story that, you know what? Jesus has a power that's greater than any superstition or mythical thing. Or he's got a greater power than anything, right? He just speaks a word and it's done, right? I mean, of course, we read the Bible. Once again, Jesus being God, he spoke the universe into creation. He spoke the earth into creation. Jesus, all he has to do is say one word and it's done. That's power, friends. People think they have power. People think they can play God for, you know, in their lives. Not one of us will ever have a power like Jesus does. He speaks one word. Things, are, things change. It's powerful. Powerful than any myth, like I said, or superstition. More powerful even than our medical community. And we thank God for you know, the advancements in, in medicine and technology. But Jesus is more powerful than that. And he comes upon this man, speaks one word. And his life is forever changed. And then all of a sudden, you know, we see, it's interesting. Do I have my notes mixed up? I think, we, I, think I do. Okay. I thought I had put these in the right order after the first service. There we go. Back on track. You know, it says that, uh, talk about his power in Matthew 4.23. It describes how Jesus went about the countryside and he said he healed every sickness and disease. Wow. He healed everything. And to top it all off, he raised Lazarus from the dead, right? I mean, even if he wasn't there in time to heal the sickness or the disease, that doesn't matter. He's dead. Okay, let's raise him up, right? Like, I mean, there is no limitations to the power Jesus has, is all I'm trying to say. So he has a great power about him. There's no magic formula, no special prayer. We're going to pray today. We've already did it. We already did it. We prayed for healing today, right? Earlier during our prayer time. We're going to have another opportunity before we're done here today. So you know what? I need healing. Or I have a loved one who needs a healing. And we're going to pray together today. Once again, not that any of us have you know, some kind of power to heal, but Jesus does. And we're going to believe him for it, all right? We, uh, we find out, it's, it's interesting as well. Um, sorry, I'm a little lost here now. My page got turned around a little bit. All right, we'll just keep going, all right. Verse eight to 13, here we go, let's pick it up. Jesus said to him, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Now this is where the story kind of takes a bit of a right turn, okay? So far, oh, this is a nice story. Jesus heals the man, yep, shows his power, shows his mercy, shows his initiative, that's all good. But remember when I said earlier, you know, the whole point of John, and of John chapter 5 in particular, is the identity of Jesus. Now, this is where the right turn comes in, because this is really where John's point really starts to begin to unfold. All right? The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. On what day? <laughs> the Sabbath. Jesus did what? You know, what was he thinking? Healing a man on the Sabbath? Was he crazy? Doesn't he know? You know, that that's wrong, that that's considered work. And then asking the man, you know, healing someone is work and that's forbidden on the Sabbath. And then asking the guy to pick up his mat and walk, that's even more work. Doesn't he know the ramifications? Of course he does, you know, he's God. 
So Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, which is forbidden, asks him to pick up his mat and walk, which is also forbidden. And we see that the religious leaders couldn't care less about the miracle. The fact that Jesus told the man to pick up his mat and walk was just too much for the Pharisees, these religious leaders, right? So Jesus performing the miracle, once again, which is work, and asking him to pick up his mat and walk, more work, ultimately caused huge problems. This is where it starts in the Gospel of John. Before this, Jesus performed miracles. But this is the first place where he started really getting that opposition from the Pharisees. Why? Because he did it on the Sabbath. It's interesting, right? And so from here on out, you start seeing this huge opposition that Jesus has to contend with, with the Pharisees. And then Jesus says something interesting to the man. It's kind of a little uh, uh, side note in verse 14. Later, Jesus found the man at the temple. Because remember, the man didn't know who it was who healed him. But later, Jesus runs into him at the temple and says, Stop sinning. I don't know if you've seen this in verse 14. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Wow. Now, is all of our sickness and disease caused by sin? No, no, thank you. Someone, someone, yeah. No, definitely not. In fact, maybe most isn't. I don't know. We read in John chapter 9, verse 2, Jesus comes upon a blind man, and his disciples asked him, you know, uh, whose sin has caused this man's blindness, either his or his father's? Jesus said, neither. This man was born blind, so the glory of God could be revealed, right? So just because you have a disease or a sickness, doesn't have, sin may have nothing to do with it. We live in a broken world full of sin, full of sickness. You know what? I got a cold last week. Is that because I sinned? No. You know, it's because I live on planet Earth and there's viruses going around, right? <laughs> That's the truth. So not all sicknesses and disabilities are caused by sin. However, sometimes, perhaps, there is something to it, right? Jesus tells this guy, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Friends, if you've experienced God's grace, whether in the form of healing or just plainly our salvation. That's all by his grace, salvation, healing, blessings. We already talked about God's initiatives because of his grace. He initiated all those things. We experience God's grace. And if we've experienced God's grace, we need to take it seriously that we need to stop the sin patterns in our lives, right? We really do. Now, friends, you know what? I had a conversation with Pastor Paul this week. We're talking about the difference between grace, or, or not the difference between, but the relationship of grace and holiness, Right? Some people think they're on two different ends of the spectrum. Well, you know, if I, if I strive to be holy, that nullifies, you know, and work at it and, 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 and wrestle with sin and try to defeat sin, that nullifies the grace of God. And so therefore I can just sin however much I want because God's grace covers it. Friends, if you're experiencing God's grace, that's going to motivate you and propel you to live a holy life. God's grace does you know, cover our sins. We find forgiveness of sins. But when you experience God's grace, my friend, let that motivate you and help you and encourage you to say, you know what? There's enough grace in God. God's put enough grace within me to overcome this sin. Amen. Not just to forgive it, but he's put enough grace with me to overcome it. Hello, right? I don't want to be stuck in some sin. So Jesus tells the guy, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So last point, and we're going to get finished here. His authority. As I said, this is really the beginning of the main point of the chapter and of the whole book of John. Verse 16. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. 
Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Right? What's he doing? He's saying, look, the reason why I healed this guy at all and the reason why I can do this on the Sabbath is because of my divine nature. Right? It's because I am one with the father. It's because I'm only doing what God does. And me and him, we're, we're tight, we're one, right? He's basically saying that he is one with God. This is why this says, you know, that he, they began to persecute him. They tried even more to kill him because he was saying he was equal with God or really one with God. He was, to, you know, he was claiming his divine nature. You know, we think sometimes, we think about the cross of Christ and how Jesus went to the cross and they said, boy, he didn't even defend himself. You know, they're, you know, asking him questions, they're mocking him, and Jesus seemingly did nothing to defend himself. Friends, Jesus already was very clear on who he was, right? He demonstrated clearly to anybody with an earshot who he was, his divine nature, the fact that God sent him, he was God in the flesh, he was there on a mission from God. You know what? No bones about it, right? That's who he was. And so Jesus demonstrates at this point not just through his healing, but what he's saying about himself, about his authority. Friends, Jesus is not just some kind of great moral teacher. He is not just a rabbi that lived a couple thousand years ago who had a band of followers, right? He is not just some prophet or some, some guy. The world's going to try to tell you these things. But Jesus himself claimed to be oh much more, right? He claimed to be God in the flesh, that's who he is. And that ultimately led to his death on the cross, right? The religious leaders were so ticked at it that that's what got him to the cross. That's what got him killed because of what he was saying. Not so much of what he did. So we're talking about the identity of Christ. And there's no greater identity marker than the fact, ultimately, and we've said it numerous times this morning, that he is God. The one true God. John 1, 1, at the beginning of the series, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is it saying? God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself. Friends, you, know, want, to know what, you want to know what God is like? You want to know his character, what his temperament is like? Study the life of Jesus. Study who Jesus is. Read the gospel of John. Read all the gospels. Study the life of Jesus. This is who he is. And we're going to end with this famous quote. We'll get the worship team to come back up. Reminds me of a famous quote that C.S. Lewis has. And many of you have read his book, Mere Christianity. And he's talking about how we can't just say Jesus is a moral teacher or just some prophet. He's saying, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish things that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on a level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, <laughs> or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You know, you can't say those type of things, right? And be a normal, rational human being is what he's saying, right? You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Wow. Friends, this is about the identity of Jesus. And there's nothing greater, no mission more important, no thing in life that should be more imperative to us than getting to know who Jesus is. Because when we start to know who Jesus is, we start to discover who we really are. (laughs) And only then can we really begin to truly live that abundant life that God wants all of us to experience, by the way. Right? We read that, right? God came and, you know, Jesus came to give abundant life. Well, you won't have that until you start to understand the nature, the character, the identity of Jesus, his grace, his love, his mercy, his holiness, right? His authority, his power, all of those things are who Jesus is. Do you want to know him more? A few people here, do you want to know him more? Yeah. I'm so thankful today for him. Why don't we just stand to our feet and um, we're going to get us out of here in a minute. And just in this moment, uh, if we can just, uh, just bow our heads and shut our eyes just in this moment. And I just got a couple of things I want to throw out there for you and just offer a moment of prayer. First of all, you know, when we're talking about the identity of Jesus, sometimes we come into a, a church like this and many times we have different ideas about who we think God is. We picture him as being this way or that way. Um, we can have a wrong idea of who God is. We don't know the identity of God. We don't know what he's really like. We haven't really studied closely who Jesus is. But today you would say, you know what? I want to know Jesus. I don't know him in the way you're describing. I don't know him as a friend. I don't know him intimately. But, I, but it sounds good. I want to get to know him. If that's you today, you'd say, you know what? I, you know what? I, I haven't given my life to him, but I want to know Jesus more. I want to pray for you. I won't do anything weird. But I just want to pray for you that you would get to know Jesus more, even in this time that we have together this morning, that you would get a sense of his presence in your life, that you would know him more intimately. If that's you today, you want you say, I want to know Jesus. I want to get to know him. I don't know him, but I want to know him. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you today. Yes, I see your hand, sister. Sir, I see your hand. Yep. Anyone else here today? You just flip. Yes, sir, I see you. To my left. Yeah, I see your hand up. Anybody else? On the right, yeah. Hands all over the building. I see a few more people. Well, if you raised your hand this morning, you can still do it. You can still raise your hand, but I'm going to pray for you today that you would begin to know Jesus intimately right in this moment, that you would give your heart and life to him right in this. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You pray this prayer. It doesn't mean you're never going to struggle. It doesn't mean that, you know, what it means is it's the beginning of a journey of learning to know Jesus and trusting Jesus, trusting him for your salvation, trusting him to make you whole. So let's pray this morning, everybody together. And if you've raised your hand, pray this prayer and mean it from your heart. Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart. 
I want to know you. Make me whole. Forgive my sins, Lord. I put my trust in you. Help me to know you more. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, friend, this is the beginning of a new, exciting journey for you. If you prayed that, prayed that prayer for the first time, tell someone as well. Come and talk to someone. Come talk to me. Come talk to someone. I want to know because I want to be able to meet you, pray with you, you know, get to know you a little bit, okay? But the last question I want to ask, still every head bowed and eye closed, I know. This is a long ending. <laughs> Typical pastor. Let's close about 14 times. All right. Just in the last minute we have together. You know what? We're talking about healing. We talked about how Jesus is the great initiator. As I mentioned earlier, you know what? I don't have a gift of healing, but I have faith in the one who does. And so you know what? If you have a, you know, something you need healing for in your body or a loved one who you'd say, you know what? They really need a touch from God. They need a healing. Whatever it is, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is. If that's you or a loved one, why don't you raise your hands and we're all going to pray together, okay? I'm going to raise my hand up with you, all right? Hands all over the building. God, we reach out to you today. Lord, we cry out to you for a move of your spirit in our lives. God, I ask you today on behalf of everyone in this room with our hands raised, God, that you would perform miracles in our lives. God, that you would heal, Lord, things that are disabled. God, you would heal sicknesses. God, you would bring encouragement to the discouraged. Lord, people who are uh, emotionally and spiritually disabled, God, I pray that you would raise them up, Lord God, that they would know that there's a great hope in you. And God, people who are struggling with sickness and disability today. God, I pray that you would just do a miracle in their bodies. God, I have faith to believe, Lord, that you can do that even in this building this morning, God, that you can just infiltrate our bodies and our hearts and our minds and do a work that only you can do, Lord God. I thank you, God, that it's not anything I've done or anything any one of us has, uh, us has done, Lord Jesus. But we put our faith and hope and trust in you. And God, if we walk out of this place today, and Lord, we're not, we haven't experienced that healing, God, it's because you are working together something good in our lives. God, I pray for every one of us who has our hands raised. God, if we don't experience that healing, we're going to keep trusting you. Lord, we're going to keep loving you. We're going to keep walking with you because we know, Lord, that you are forming Christ within us, Lord, as we trust in you today. And so, God, we want to say we love you, we trust you, we give our hearts and lives and surrender to, uh, to you again this morning. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you as you leave today. Be encouraged. Have a great week.